Onassis Foundation. Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, LA, and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holden Graber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, could I please speak with Michelle Luke? Hi, Paul. How's it going? It's going very well, Michelle. I'm so delighted that you're part of the quarantine tapes that is co-presented by Onassis LA and Dublab. It's such a pleasure to speak to you. The first question I have for you is your name. I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> totally intrigued by it and wonder if it's your real name or if you were a reader of uh, Marcel Duchamp and created that name? I mean, you've already found me out. <laughs> it's or- a pseudonym, of course. And uh, it all started because I was writing a sex column when, <laughs> when I graduated from school okay. and didn't want my parents to find out. And I thought it would be so funny to put in a little reference to Duchamp in there, you know, that uh, is a little exciting. If you actually say it in French, elle a chaud au cul. Elle a chaud au cul, <laughs> en effet. And I, when I, when I, first of all, I had, you know, who am I to talk about names? My name is difficult to pronounce sometimes. Uh, but I, when I, when I read it, I thought to myself, my goodness, she's having fun. <laughs> yes, I'm definitely having fun, but I'm also protecting myself. I think it's important to kind of remember that, you know, as a writer who's engaging in a lot of sort of gray areas, gray market, underground market, illegal substances, and is also like a young woman of color, I'm exposed to a lot of risk, I think, from the state, from alt-right folks, from from all sides. And so having something that kind of shields my, my biological identity ends up being really helpful even if it's more just for the sake of my own psychology. Well, I think Duchamp would have loved this. I think he, I think he would have really <laughs> loved the idea that you have used the way he referred uh, to his Mona Lisa as your name. I, I think it's it's a marvelous, marvelous uh, appropriation, if I if I might say. And well, this leads me, Michelle, to what what I have really loved, which is your style. You write so well, incredibly well, and I I will be permitting myself to read some of your work so that our listeners really get a sense that you you may be writing about the illicit underground, uh, but my goodness, you do it with panache. And I want to begin by by asking you about the way you characterize yourself using Hunter S. Thompson uh, as a gonzo reporter. And one of my favorite lines of Hunter S. Thompson is when he says, I have a theory that the truth is never told during the nine to five hours. Can you comment on that and maybe on your appropriation of Hunter S. Thompson? Yeah, so Hunter is someone that kind of... um 
the name gets thrown at me a lot. So I've kind of adopted it a little, but I also have a problematic relationship with a little bit. But, you know, I think that Gonzo reporting is really interesting because it's allowing you to tell stories that are kind of outside of the mainstream, that fall into the cracks, that are maybe undocumented or underdocumented, misunderstood, you know, stories about the freaks and the margins and liminality, which ends up actually not being liminal at all, but often the first places where important ideas and discussions hit before they kind of enter the mainstream. But I'm wondering, you know, that, that quotation I read to you of Hunter S. Thompson, that, that truth in, in some way doesn't emerge um, during the nine to five hours. I feel that must be true in some way for you, unless we talk about 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think that nightlife, rave culture, you know, subcultures that happen at night beneath the radar of <laughs> the nine to five office uh, matrix is something that I'm definitely very interested and inspired by. That's the zeitgeist that drives and inspires me. Well, I must say, in, in a piece on Kelly Sober, which I'd like you uh, to, to comment on, you write the following, which will give, I think, our listeners a sense of what I talk about when I talk about your robust style. You say, as the pandemic recedes, nightlife will be a pivotal to reframing sobriety as a communal and sustainable political practice, as these limited spaces have always been the frontier where new cultural ideas are tested before they hit the mainstream zeitgeist. However, new frameworks for sobriety are essential if we wish to evolve from the toxic norm, expand beyond the traditional abstinence-based model of Alcoholics Anonymous and avoid the commodified narrative of wellness culture and capitalist club culture. In a world that profits off our sustained unwellness, reframing sobriety as community building and mutual care can only turn post-pandemic nightlife into a therapeutic site for social rehabilitation and even, dare we say it, revolution. I'd love you to unpack this a little bit further. Yeah, so, you know, I am extremely interested in sobriety as a political practice. Mm. And, you know, kind of going back to Hunter, I think that he's built such a reputation in the counterculture for his total embrace of drugs. <laughs> and I right. think that's really cool. That's really cool and important, too. But we're in a different era, right? We're in an era where drugs are becoming legalized and the state is now co-opting psychedelics. <laughs> And things that, like, probably people in the 60s and 70s couldn't even imagine are now happening. And so, you know, I think that my discovery of sobriety as a really potent countercultural force kind of emerged really recently. It really only started when I moved to California to kind of document the legalization of cannabis and notice the corporatization of this substance and the branding of, of cannabis and all of these like luxury products coming out. Right. Um, and, and now that's happening with psychedelics too. With ketamine. And then, mm -hmm, ketamine clinics are probably like the most luxurious spa experiences that you can now have in Beverly Hills. I mean, <laughs> that's 
pretty absurd, right? Ketamine, like the horse tranquilizer that everyone was so afraid about. So, you know, seeing the sort of like corporate takeover of drugs and drug counterculture started making me kind of feel more interested in sobriety. And then, you know, during the pandemic, I think that's when a lot of the ideas that I've been thinking about really crystallized. Once I hit the street and started going to protests all over the country and seeing the way that drug culture was refracted in these protests in a totally different way from what we imagined happened at Woodstock, right? Um, Like drugs were not glorified as inherently subversive at all. I think that more often people were very wary of people doing drugs in in these protest spaces. There was a lot of like fentanyl overdoses and, you know, just addiction happening. And a lot of the protesters on the ground were really preaching sobriety. I remember seeing a sign that like really, really stuck with me. It was outside of Seattle's occupied protest zone, also known as the CHOP or CHAZ. It was like a barricaded protest outside of a police station that had been abandoned. And there was this, you know, there was this huge sign of like one of their Antifa security guards dressed in a tutu (laughs) at the barricades. And it said substance over substances, right? And so they were really trying to make this protest zone um, a sober space. And I think that was the moment where it hit, where I thought, oh, wow, Gen Z, like the children that are, co- that are coming after the 90s crack wars and the heroin and the opioid epidemic, like they see drugs totally differently. And to them, sobriety is the way to drop out and resist. Sobriety as nearly a form of anti-capitalism. Yes, exactly, exactly. And sobriety also not necessarily being, and this is another idea that I engage with really, um, really, really seriously, I think, is um, sobriety not just being a binary of you're either right. on drugs or you're off drugs. And, 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 <laughs> that and, and, is and I wonder, and I wonder if this, Michelle. Sorry for interrupting you. I sorry. I'm, no, I'm, I'm wondering if this, Michelle, is is perhaps the struggle you are having, or that I I think you are having, with Alcoholic Anonymous. Well, I think yeah. I think AA has been the classic model of sobriety for so long, and the way that they have defined what is considered a drug and what is not considered a drug is just one definition of sobriety. Like, to AA, I think their definition is anything that affects you from the neck up, so anything that alters your consciousness is considered a drug. So, obviously, weed, alcohol, cocaine, whatever. But, to them, nicotine, caffeine, sugar are totally part of every single AA meeting, right? (laughs) Those are not considered drugs. And I think that when you talk to, for example, someone who is Gen Z, and you ask them, what are some of your favorite drugs? They might say, oh, I love weed. And I also love Nick, Nick being nicotine. So I think that the paradigm is shifting. 
like what we classify as drugs versus medicine, what we consider plants, healing substances and medicines versus chemicals that are bad. Like everything is shifting because of drug legalization. Um, I think cannabis broke down a lot of barriers that people had in their minds about illegal substances. And I think a lot of people are just trying to formulate their new understandings of like what is a drug diet that feels healing to me personally. And, and you talk about the spectrum sobriety. You say when we talk about new frameworks for spectrum sobriety in nightlife, we are ultimately talking, I find this wonderful, ultimately talking about a modality shift from hedonism to healing. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting always to see my ideas sort of reflected through someone else because I feel like I've been moving very instinctually in right. chasing the zeitgeist. <laughs> but but you, but you're on the cusp of some, I, I feel like you're on the cusp of something that may happen in a big way uh, in a in a very big way and in a, in a, in a sense perhaps as you said a moment ago this pandemic has been, as you say yourself, so interestingly to me, a portal. And before I get to, to your comment about the portal, whenever I hear the word portal during this pandemic, I think of Arundhati Roy's extraordinary piece where she says, historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our da data banks and dead ideas, or dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly, with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. And you, in an incredibly good piece called... Um, party anxiety, you write, the vaccine is a psychedelic experience. A drug shoots through your body and changes your reality in an instant. The warped black hole of lockdown where time and space was distended into a disorienting echo chamber suddenly opens into a portal. So in some way, this, this vaccine is preparing us for a revolution. Yes, I, I, I hesitate at sort of uh, <laughs> predicting revolution once again <laughs> and maybe being disappointed. <laughs> I, I think that's I think that's wise. Right. But what is right. it? What, what what is this portal? Well, you, you heard Arundhati Roy talk about it, and uh, you, you're probably familiar with her work. And so, so there is the possibility of change. And we're all talking now, I think, in our 19th to 20th months of this, this shutdown, we're talking about what it might mean to come back to what passes for normal. And are we going, and perhaps the whole point is not to go back to normal because normal got us into huge trouble. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think when we say that the pandemic was a portal, we're using language that feels very mystical. Yes. And yes, I think that we are entering this sort of 
you know, whatever you want to call it, Aquarian age. <laughs> and this, and the pandemic can be understood as a portal in that it was also, you know, a psychedelic experience. It was something that really amplified a lot of the trauma, disorder, inequities that were kind of, you know, simmering in the subconscious and made it impossible to ignore. And at the same time, also made us confront death and our own sort of like finitude on um, what does it mean to kind of like struggle with grief on both a personal and a political level. Right. Um, and, you know, I think that what I noticed in the world that I exist in is um, complete paradigm shift in the way that we think about um, nightlife and pleasure, as well as drugs and what we consider to be medicine versus, you know, addictive, bad substances. I think that we saw complete reversal. And it was so interesting to me as someone who spent most of my career sort of, you know, toiling away in these spaces that are often shunned, misunderstood, not really given any sort of um, credence as like valuable things that um, people should engage with. But I think, you know, during the pandemic, suddenly parties became so problematic, politicized. I mean, most people were shot in their own homes during the whole quarantine thing, but there was this whole other world. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. Tell me about it because <laughs> I was I was shut in, so I, I, I missed out. Tell me what I missed. What was that other world? And also, what is that other world? You, you use the, the, the word pleasure. I'd like you to expand on that. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, on one hand, you can just talk about all of the underground parties that were happening sort of, you know, objectively, irresponsibly <laughs> in the face of the pandemic. Usually, you know, these were young kids, people who felt immune from the pandemic, throwing just raves in, in warehouses or house parties and things like that. But there were also, I thought, a lot of parties happening on the street at the protest because those were the only sorts sort of like socially permissible spaces to engage in communal pleasure and connection. And I think I started picking up on that here in LA at the first huge protest that I went to, which was I think in June of 2020. And it was in Hollywood, right on Hollywood Boulevard. And there were like hip hop stars filming music videos. <laughs> And teenagers who had just graduated from high school or college and, you know, all kinds of musicians and artists and everybody, it just seemed, was like out on the street partying. And the energy to me felt like Coachella. I literally was like, this is Protestella. <laughs> the energy feels like a festival. And that made me kind of think about, you know, these theories about carnivalesque a yeah. theatrical sort of like libidinal release that has existed since literally medieval times. You, you mean what people? You mean people like Bakhtin and others? Exactly, exactly. So you know, there was definitely a lot of carnivalesque energy on the street, but at the same time, there was so much backlash against that. The day after that Hollywood protest, there were so many headlines by people in the media or, you know, people in like the political 
protesting, sort of criticizing what they perceived as inappropriate pleasure happening in a space that was supposed to be about Black death and grief. So what is the place of, of pleasure um, in, in, a, in a manifestation like that? What is the place of pleasure in partying? What is the place of pleasure in partying where we no longer use the same substances to get our pleasure? Well, I think that is the central question that I'm constantly trying to answer in my work, trying to locate the role that pleasure is playing in what we consider protest or counterculture today. Because even though it was so chastised and so called out, I think by especially the uh, Twitter commentariat, <laughs> I could not deny the role that pleasure was playing at the protest that I went to. People were deploying tactics that I saw at raids at the front lines of police brutality. So, for example, let me just let me just sort of give you a scene. Please. You know, one of the most memorable frontline experiences that I had during my reporting was at this um, encampment, this homeless encampment in Philadelphia, where a group of housing activists, many of whom were formerly homeless themselves, had set up a barricade outside of the city's largest Whole Foods. And they were occupying this sort of zone that they declared a temporary autonomous zone, um, which, you know, fascinated me because I'm really interested in that concept through um, Hawking Bay is writing about that. And because that concept of an autonomous zone free from dominant, you know, power structures is also super relevant to rape culture. But anyway... So I was at this homeless encampment. I stayed overnight in a tent because the police were supposed to come in and try and, you know, invade the space, kick everyone out, the usual thing. And as a way to attract people to this space and keep them awake, keep their spirits high throughout the night, there were DJs. There were DJs playing music out of sound systems right up at the barricades all night towards the police to basically create a dance floor at the margins of this protest as a way to keep the police out. And, you know, it was such a simple and effective strategy that I think I wish more of the actual rave community had been engaged with. Michelle, some, uh, another piece of your writing that I, I find really interesting is, is a piece you wrote about the summer. I mean, these are all, this is all new to me, but so exciting because of the way you bring it about, the summer of shrooms. And you say, could the same fungi that provided so much solace in quarantine now help us to reintegrate back into the world? In other words, can partying on shrooms instead of alcohol and cocaine foster deeper social connections and empathy as we recover from the pandemic's wreckage. And I'm I'm wondering how, I, I hate to use the word optimistic, but how, and I don't particularly like using the word hopeful, but how you think things will, will play out? You know, I, I just recently have been watching the series Succession, and my goodness, all you ever see is cocaine. <laughs> right. Well, I think that 
you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people experimented with psychedelics, maybe for the first time or in a different way than they've been used to. There was a lot of journeying inwards, a lot of solitude, obviously. And so, you know, shrooms just took off during the pandemic. And I noticed because I actually interviewed dozens of dealers all over the country to kind of analyze drug trends because I was like, is this something that's only happening in California, maybe? But no, every single dealer that I talked to said that their sales of shrooms in particular skyrocketed above cocaine or MDMA or, you know, other substances that people use socially. Um, so we, we know for a fact that psychedelic use went up during the pandemic lockdowns, but I think what I'm really interested in is now that we're sort of in this reopening reintegration stage, are shrooms going to continue to be popular? Are we going to be able to integrate them into the way that we socialize and the way that we party with each other? And what I noticed here in L.A., actually, was the rise of shroom parties as right. soon as the pandemic lockdowns lifted. And it was a new form of socializing. I mean, L.A., God bless this city, is not known for its nightlife. <laughs> and I think that a lot of its sort of underground party scene was just sort of emulating, you know, Berlin, New York, other cities that have totally different landscapes and architectures. But... Once the pandemic lifted, I think L.A. party people kind of had a chance to rethink how do we create a community around, you know, music and psychedelics that feels innate to what our city's values and culture is about. So um, basically, I just saw a lot of really cool, like outdoor ambient music or sort of like gentler, slower, more psychedelic music happening, renegade style in like parks and forests and tucked away gardens um in like weed shops you know just totally different environments from industrial wasteland nightclubs warehouse spaces that we associate with um rape culture and drug use so you know i think that shrooms do create a totally different energetic space for socializing people might be afraid to kind of jump into like communal shroom use, but then you have to remember that that's actually how shrooms have been administered and experienced since the dawn of time. You know, we've always taken these substances in community. So I think that the future of partying, if you want to call it that, or just, you know, social interactions and connection is actually moving towards incorporating psychedelics in a ceremonial way, a way that feels ancient, but also tapping into recreational party pleasure space. So mean, basically, I think that the line between medicinal and recreational is totally blurring, and, especially and, in social spaces. And, and this is where, where the word that you use, you know, which reminded me of the work of the anthropologist Victor Turner of a liminal space, and I know that when when you talk about a community gathering around shrooms, another interesting aspect of your work is the work you're doing around shrooms and what one might call psychedelic therapy connected with music as you take the shrooms. Can you can you talk a little bit about music, psychedelic th therapy, and shrooms and how they all go together? Right. So this is another really interesting cultural trend that I think is breaking and emerging right now, literally as we 
geek, and it is about to be huge. I, I, yeah, you're you're at that liminal cusp space, Michelle Luke. <laughs> and this story about music and psychedelic therapy felt Tell me. Like the most important story that kind of synthesized everything that I've been thinking and talking about for many years, finally into a concrete moment where I can say, okay, this is a cultural breaking wave that's about to hit. And, you know, basically how it started <laughs> was I noticed that a lot of my friends who were DJs were creating mixes, like extended play, extended mixes and playlists for psychedelic therapy. So this is like music that people will listen to in therapy sessions when it comes to ketamine. And very soon, I think when MDMA um, is legalized and shrooms are legalized, we're going to have similar sorts of environments where therapists are sitting in a room and they need to play music for these trips. And so there's a whole new market of what is the best music to play for psychedelic therapy. And so that kind of became like the guiding question of, okay, well, psychedelic music is no longer just, you know, something that you hear at a Grateful Dead concert. Psychedelic music is now really orienting itself towards the zeitgeist of therapy and clinical spaces. And then you kind of jump into the research being done. And that's where it starts to get really interesting. And in a way, I felt super vindicated as somebody who has been covering the importance of music and drug experiences as being healing in a cultural sense. But now we're kind of getting hard evidence-based research into the synergies between music and psychedelics. And, you know, basically to encapsulate it in a simple way, you know, researchers have found that music is the most important element in creating a healing, transcendent experience. Um, it is a vessel, it is a ship that guides people through what can often be a very overwhelming and chaotic experience. And it's not like scientists are the first to kind of discover this. I think that if you go back to indigenous practices, it's super interesting to see how, you know, psychedelics like ayahuasca or shrooms all have very specific musical styles that have emerged um, to, to correspond and complement those specific experiences. But I think now we're entering into the world of AI <laughs> and algorithmic music and Silicon Valley being super interested in psychedelics. So this was the first story that I've ever written where I interviewed both human composers and electronic producers, as well as AI app makers in the same story. And, you know, there's just so much interest and money going into people trying to figure out what kind of music specifically can create the most resonant and harmonious and healing frequencies to guide you through a psychedelic experience. And one musician that I talked to said that it's like a whole new genre of music is being born. Can you, can you, I mean, I know it probably is incredibly difficult to do, but can you describe that music? Well, I think it's a really um, interesting creative conundrum. It's not exactly 
I mean, of course, you can look into the research and see, okay, what resonances and timbres and rhythms might be considered soothing. But at the same time, you know, you don't want it to be totally palliative and just calming. You really want to also push people a little bit if they're in an area of discomfort, maybe to go a little bit deeper. Right. So the best way that I can describe it is it's, it's, it's you know, it's considered ambient mix. Um, so it's like it's electronic, usually with like some organic, you know, samples or field recordings from nature often. And it's very vibrational. It feels like you're kind of sinking into a dark, warm bath. Um, and there's never anything that kind of leaps out at you and, you know, throws you off your course or maybe startles you. You know, everything feels very unified into um, a sound space that feels maybe cohesive and like a blanket or a boat. Um, but at the same time, it can also have emotional valences that can feel maybe a little bit um, heavier or darker, not necessarily in like a scary way, but just, you know, I'm helping you and guiding you. And I'm wondering if it can go wrong. If a psychedelic trip can go wrong. You know, if you, if you trip badly, the music not helping. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of the reason why this market is emerging is because people are realizing that the current musical tools that are available are often not good enough. Um, I think that often the playlists that have been used by scientists at clinical studies, you know, at universities and things, are composed by scientists working within their own frame of references of what they consider to be soothing or transcendent, which can often fall into what, you know, older white men consider to be soothing, which is classical music or maybe something new age. But that doesn't mean that it's going to work for everybody, right? So I think what is really cool about this story and the way that it intersects with all of my previous work is how DJs especially are kind of rising to the task of figuring out how to create emotional journeys through music because that is something that they've been trained to do for their whole careers is yes. read a room of people right. and take them on an emotional journey. And I'm not sure if the AI apps right. are quite right. there yet. You know, what, what interests me so much in everything you've said is there's an aesthetic element, but there's also a real ethical dimension. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is something that is happening now in the psychedelic space that cannabis also had to reckon with, which is how do we create a new industry that is such a powerful new technology in a way that feels ethical? And I think that so many things are happening in this space that are shady. They're super sus. And most people have no idea because these these worlds, as we've talked about before, are so emergent that most people have no idea that psychedelics like MDMA are maybe two, three years away from legalization or maybe don't even know that ketamine clinics exist. Right. So how do we even get into talking about 
the ethics of creating an industry around psychedelics when people don't even understand how these things even work, you know? But I think that the ethical question really pivots on accessibility of who is going to be able to even access Right, right. It's not, not, not only those who live in Beverly Hills, as it were. Right. And the way that the industry is shaping up right now is not looking good. It's looking really, really, really bad. And I'm standing here kind of waving my arms, and I think a lot of other journalists are as well, being like, you guys, shit is about to go down. This is really bad. What are we going to do about it? <laughs> right, right, right. Michelle, what a, um, Michelle, what a, what a, what a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I must say, it was wonderful to 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 start with uh, Marcel Duchamp and then then move on to Hunter S. Thompson, and to to also give our listeners a sense of of the the way in which you approach this. I reading about about your work and reading your work, it doesn't surprise me at all that you you started your career, as it were, as a, a student of comparative literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I was always really drawn to something that felt cross-cultural, intersectional, you know, global. And I'm not going to lie, I was specifically drawn to Columbia University because of its history as sort of con- countercultural students and, and movements like the Beat Generation specifically <laughs> that was like a huge inspiration for me as like maybe the first countercultural movement that organized around psychedelics and what that could mean in terms of resisting dominant hierarchy michelle um, thank you so much for taking this time i i really enjoyed it and i i look forward to checking in with you soon again when things have shifted in in a direction that uh, perhaps your your work itself is indicating Thank you so much, Paul. This was so fun. Thank you so much. Take good care of yourself, and I hope we meet someday. Me too. Bye-bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.